Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. So this is Dr. Dan, and uh, we're in the midst of an incredible discussion between Bob Kaplan and David Wilson. Bob Kaplan, who approaches climate change uh, from a more industrial um, and regulation view, uh, point of view, and David Wilson, a teacher who spent 23, 28 years teaching kids science in school. We've brought up some points that I think need to be discussed a little bit more. David, do kids ever ask you about the Paris Climate Accord? Is that something they're, they're aware to of? To be honest, they're not interested in it, but I've said this before. A lot of people are not interested in this topic until they find out what it's going to cost. And the poor people in Holland, those guys in that area, they're finding out what this thing's going to cost. The industries in America already know. Uh, they have to filter their uh, smoke to the extreme points. They have to control carbon by uh, carbon filters, some kind of sequestra uh, sequestration method. And the... Uh, companies that make cars know what this thing has done is added cost because they're trying to capture more carbon dioxide and even the people that make wood burning stoves are finding out that this is going to add to the cost the consumer is going to find out that just to buy a wood burning stove is going to cost you more because they're trying to capture that evil carbon dioxide uh, and i wanted to mention something Bob had, had said about the scientific method. It looks as if they have completely abandoned it, and they have written these protocols and treaties. They've based all this stuff on a hypothesis because it is not proven. And when you when I was teaching, I said I always focused on the fact that science was based upon experiments, and when you had a theory, you had to go through a process. And that theory was generally somebody presented an idea or they had a question, and then they did some research, and they tested it. And if it worked, they went back and did it again, and they repeated it. And then they had other people to repeat it. And if you got the same results, then you're on to something. But the general idea is that if you hold something up for the world to see and, and you say, look, I've discovered something. This is an idea I've got. The idea of the scientific method is to try your best to poke holes in that thing, to make it fail. You want to poke holes in that idea so it won't work. But it looks like they've reversed this thing where the the method has been abandoned and they've got the conclusion at the end. Well, exactly. And that's one of the things that's leading us astray on this, why you're getting this bad, bad public policy because you're not following the scientific method on this, 
but again, we're we're this thing is driven by more than just the science. It's ideologically driven. And uh, there's other agendas that are out there. You know, uh, the the businesses that can profit, uh, they're in there. There's also uh, power. And, you know, governments love power. And it's addictive. And this gives them tremendous power over our whole economy when you think about it. So it's something that uh, people need to understand. Uh, Right now it hasn't hit us. But it it will. Uh, I think the tragedy is the timelines are driving so much of this cost because these timelines are doing things faster than even if we wanted to do them, we can't do them. You're not going to be able to decarbonize the utility industry in the U.S. Our our target is uh, 2035. We have to have no carbon emissions from the utility industry. And that... Thank goodness we never put that in a treaty ratified by the Senate. So we have some wiggle room. We've got an administration that's hell-bent to doing that. But then, uh, you know, all the carbon out of the, uh, the environment, uh, you know, just a few, few years later. The other, the other thing with this uh, carbon, uh, you know, requirements in the treaty is we've been bamboozled uh, by the Indians and the Chinese on this. And I was reading in the paper uh, probably about a month and a half ago, and uh, you know, the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post, they were all giddy because the Chinese and the Indians made their commitment to the treaty. And you're, you're supposed to do that periodically. You say, hey, here's our commitment. We're going to do this. And so you know, our commitment is basically – Get rid of all the carbon dioxide from the utility industry by 2035, totally decarbonized by another date. And then the Chinese came and said, we will reduce our carbon intensity per unit of production by 50 percent by 2050. And they said, oh, wow, look at what the Chinese are doing. They're great. And the Indians come in and said, we're going to reduce ours. We're going to improve our carbon intensity. We're going to cut it in half. In fact, we're going to cut it 70%. And everyone said, oh, man, they're on board. They're on board. Well, unfortunately, most people don't know what carbon intensity is, and it's how much carbon you put out per unit of product. So what they're doing is they're making their uh, electric generation more and more efficient but they're not going to be putting out less carbon dioxide. They're going to be making more products. So if they double their products and their carbon intensity goes down 50%, you're putting out the same amount of carbon dioxide. And the thing that bothers me, I, I worked in industry. I worked on two of the most revolutionary power systems ever built. And none of those, well, we got one built in the U.S. The other we didn't get any built but they're being built in India and China. And they're taking their old units, which are about half as efficient as these brand new units, and when they run down and they can't use them anymore, they're building new ones, one a week, one a week with this new technology. They're able to meet that commitment because they are putting out less carbon dioxide per megawatt hour, 
but they're making a lot more megawatt hours. And when we cripple our industry, what little manufacturing we have goes over there. The big thing we've had here is we have economic and very reliable electricity. And what happens is their electricity is expensive for them, not as reliable, but thanks to us, they're going to have some of the cheapest, most reliable energy in the world. And where do you want to manufacture where you have cheap, reliable energy and maybe a little bit of cheap labor? Bob, wouldn't you say that uh, electricity is the number one discovery of all time and has separated us from the Stone Age? I would say it sure helped. <laughs> uh, if we had, if we limit our production of electricity, uh, and you have people sitting in the dark, factories closing, that kind of thing, uh, you're going to have problems like food production, uh, transportation issues. People will not survive some of this stuff. And we look back at uh, just recently, uh, about a year or so ago, last winter actually in Texas, I have no idea how they got that, this much control, but those people in Texas converted over to a large percent of their power production to the what we call green energy, the windmills, the solar, and that kind of thing. And then that coal front came through, and those things quit working. Those things quit working. Those people had no heat, and they died because of it. So we're talking about a very serious issue here. Well, I heard one person say years ago that electricity was the oxygen of the economy. Yes. And you have to have it. Uh, it is one of the most amazing inventions when you think about what Edison did and uh, so many others. But uh, again, that's one of the great fears. Uh, I've, I've experimented with solar energy. I've got a solar battery backup at the mountain cabin, more for a backup, you know, outage power and stuff like that, but also for a learning experience. I can tell you absolutely it's not cost effective. I did the economic analysis, and it will pay for itself. I think it was 183 years it would pay for itself, provided the electricity increased at 10% a year in cost. So, But it is a, a form of renewable energy. Wind is cost competitive, but when the wind doesn't blow. And so what, what happens is you need these tremendous overbuilding because it's only it only runs like solar in North Carolina 24% efficient so if you want to have as much power in your solar as a fossil you've got to build four times as much solar to get the same thing as a fossil generator doesn't run at night so you not you have to have even more so you can put enough in batteries except the batteries are more expensive than the solar system. So it's a lot of things. We can do it. That's University of Florida. The first thing my professor Tyner told me, he said, nothing is impossible for an engineer if you bring enough money. And this is true, but you're going to have to bring a heck of a lot of money, but you're not going to have reliable power. And that is the key to America's manufacturing uh and also our quality of life. And so to me, this thing is like timeline is screwed up. And at the end of the day, even if you could do it, 
your own computer models say it won't make a dime's worth of difference. That's interesting that you mentioned that uh, the problems with solar power. Uh, we think of that as a green, and that word has been hijacked. That The solar cells are not green. Uh, if sunshine is free, that's true, but nobody ever tells you what they do with this stuff when they die. And these things don't last forever, and they end up in the landfill. They cannot recycle solar cells. And there are some pretty toxic things in there that they just can't use. So they have to get rid of them, and they mostly bury them. They can't really burn them or anything like that. But in one of my physics classes, we calculated the output of a solar cell and it, we determine you know the number of volts uh, per uh, uh, cubic foot or per uh, square foot of the solar cell and it's not that much so in order to make up the difference you have to have an extremely large array of cells to get any kind of real usable voltage so I asked the kids I said look and we're going to try to power Murphy on this how many watts do you think we're going to run so we figured out how many approximately megawatts and uh, we're going to consume in a year and that kind of thing I said well you know how big a uh, an array do you think we're going to have to have and we had figured that every square inch of Murphy would have to be covered plus the mountains so my question is you know just driving through Cherokee County do you like looking at these arrays of solar cells where there used to be a pasture or do you like seeing these mountains cut out with solar cells on it uh, it's not really an issue it's not and it's certainly not uh, so this is Dr. Dan and uh, we're in the midst of an incredible discussion between Bob Kaplman and David Wilson. Bob Kaplman, who approaches climate change uh, from a more industrial um, and regulation view, uh, point of view. And David Wilson, a teacher who spent 28 years teaching kids science in school. We've brought up some points that I think need to be discussed a little bit more. So we're having this discussion about climate change uh, with Bob Kaplman and uh, of David Wilson. They're coming at it from two different uh, perspectives. Uh, but again, what we, what we need to talk about here at this point is why are young people so terrified of climate change? And why are older people not so terrified? I'm reminding someone once told me, uh, and you said to me, well, I'm 85 years old, so life in prison doesn't mean too much to me. But we're, get, we're here, we have a generation of young people who are absolutely terrified. We saw one from Scandinavia at the UN who was in, screaming in tears about how what we're, we're doing uh, to the climate of Earth, uh, obviously. So why are young people so gullible and fearful? Dr. Dan, that's a good question. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, because their professors in college have uh, made them that way, uh, these are extremists. They're extreme, uh, ra ex extreme radicals. They have an agenda, and their idea is to get it passed through the minds of the kids so they can get that accomplished. And you mentioned Greta Thunberg. Uh, that little girl is probably not a climatologist, and yet she's featured on every uh, television station. And when she was speaking to the UN, she was featured everywhere. She was a superstar. But you go back and look, this is a high school kid. She's not qualified to, to talk on climate change. She's not a climatologist. And that, to me, brings me in 
to the point that the people that are doing this talking, a lot of them don't have the necessary education to even talk about it. Many, I've done the research, many of the people that are, are driving this thing are involved in environmental science. It's true, but they don't have any training in climatology. And that's a big difference. When you look at an expert such as yourself and a surgeon for the eye, you know, you'd go to someone like yourself to have a surgery on the eye, but you, would, you sure wouldn't go to a plumber. I mean, there are specialties that you would go to if you want to get something done. And these people that are driving this agenda are not specialists. And so to answer your question, why are these uh, kids so afraid of it? They've been told to be afraid of it. It's that simple. Well, also, I think I'm seeing, I've got grandkids now, and they're starting this at uh, grade school. That's they're, right. They, they have literature, and the teachers have these planners of different subjects, which you're probably familiar with, and this is how you're going to teach these kids this stuff. And I'm afraid, and I, I think it ties into the fact of what is happening in the teachers' colleges and so on, where you're getting a lot of this stuff programmed into them. They're relaying it back into the kids. You're also getting science out of the curriculum. Uh, you could not get out. There were two things at uh, Stetson University where I did my undergraduate. You could not get out without one of the sciences. You had to have that. You had to have a course in critical thinking. In other words, it could be logic. It could be statistics. But And you can get out of a four-year college now without even a science course in some, some of these schools you can certainly get out without critical thinking. In fact, when I was in, I ended up somehow getting waylaid into a graduate level uh, educational psychology course. And it was the first time I realized uh, the phenomenon, phenomenon of regurgitation. And it was essay type class. And every time I would put down what I thought at what I read, I'd get like B's, one time a C plus, and it's like, hey, I lose my fellowship if I get a grade less than a B. So I'm getting worried here. And then I said, you know, I all I have to do is tell that professor what they want to hear, and I can That's get it. I can get out of here. But unfortunately, I'm somewhat of a rebel, and I was listening to this self concept, self worth, and all this other stuff, and I thought I can't do it. I can't do it. So the final. Took it, put the essay, but the last question saved me. Said, what grade do you think you deserve in this course and why? And I said, Dr. Purdy, I believe I need I have to, I deserve an A because it's so important to my self-concept and my self-esteem. And you know that rascal gave me an A because he was a true believer. <laughs> Can I mention something about that? Uh, you're talking about the problems with saying what people want to hear. And that's another issue with kids in school. They do want to regurgitate without thinking. I've seen that for years uh, because in the end, they want the grade. But I have a friend who's retired from the University of Wisconsin, and he's an environmental science teacher. He's fully qualified. He, he knows his stuff. And we talk a lot. We still talk a lot about this topic. And he said that his students, his grad students, could not get a grant, have 
had uh, they not mentioned global climate change. So they have to mention carbon dioxide causing this change. They're going to fix it somehow. They're going to study it somehow. But it has to be in the report. It has to be in the application for their grant. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man, I get joy in everything. Everything, everything, everything gonna be 